God's word in 2 Kings 23, beginning in verse 1, says, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book, and all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and the constellation and all the host of heaven. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord. Outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron, At the brook Kidron he beat it, and burned it to dust, and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah, and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings, from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the son at the entrance of the house of the Lord, by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the son of fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He bowled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians. And for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. And for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, by the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, the altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, Let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines, also the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord 
to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars. And he burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. And the king commanded all the people, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who had judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or of the kings of Judah. But in the eighteenth year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were found in the book that Halkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off the city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I have said, My name shall dwell there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days... Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Let's pray. O Lord, The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word abides forever. So would you speak this morning through your word that we might be built up, that we might honor you with our lives. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, you may have watched Star Wars movie The Last Jedi, and in it, Luke Skywalker has grown frustrated with the Jedi and with his own failure to raise up the next generation. So in his exasperation, he goes to destroy the ancient Jedi tree with the Jedi books. Yet when he gets there, he hesitates. And then Yoda shows up and sends them in flames. The opportunity to teach, Yoda misses not. And he instructs the anxious Luke that the burning of the books is no big deal. In fact, the Jedi Rey has everything in her that the books possess. The director of the movie caught the spirit of of the age. Star Wars has always been about more than an enjoyable film. George Lucas, the creator, said, I see Star Wars as taking all the issues that religion represents and trying to distill them down into a more modern and accessible construct. The last Jedi movie communicates what so many people think, and that is to be spiritual, to be religious. You don't need any book. What you need is already inside of you. Yet our story this morning is painting the exact opposite. It tells of King Josiah, whose life was radically changed when he found the book. We read of this last week in chapter 22. And if you look at chapter 22, verse 11, you'll see, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And then last week we saw he sent men to hear from God's prophetess, Huldah, who said that, The judgment of God warned of was going to come to pass. 
Yet Josiah would be spared since he humbled himself, tore his clothes. And yet now we see today that Josiah didn't just stop with an emotional response. Rather, Josiah leads the whole nation in spiritual reformation. And he does so because his life is shaped. It's governed. It's controlled by God's word. His spirituality does not get an impulse from himself. Rather, it comes from God's external, eternal word. Let's look this morning at four things. The first three verses are showing us a covenant renewal. Then the next set of verses, verses 4 to 20, are showing the removing of false worship. Then Josiah's restoring right worship in 21 to 25. And then the story ends showing that though Josiah was righteous, his works were not redemptive. But it all begins in the first three verses where Josiah gathers all the people for this covenant renewal. And we read of a similar thing earlier in Deuteronomy 29 where Moses gathered the people, read the book of the law and said, y'all should do this every seven years and commit yourself to the Lord. You may know the famous time at the end of Joshua where Joshua gathers the people and he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he challenges them, who will they serve? And after reading the book of the law, Josiah then promises that he will walk after the Lord, that he will guard and keep God's commandments and statutes with all his heart and soul. Now this is very similar to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, that say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Yet it's interesting Deuteronomy says to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Josiah promises to keep God's commands with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why is Josiah talking about keeping God's commands if the charge is to love God? Isn't obedience that dry, cold thing that the Pharisees did that Jesus rebuked them for? Well, it's true. You can obey God merely out of duty and not delight, and that doesn't please God. As well, you can have an external obedience that looks like you're obeying God, but it's not pleasing to Him. The prophet Isaiah warned Josiah's great-grandfather's generation. He said, This people honors me with their lips, while their heart is far from me. And Jesus takes those words of Isaiah and says them against the Pharisees. Yet Jesus is clear The issue he has with the Pharisees is not their obedience. Thus, Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, what Jesus attacks the Pharisees for is their motivation for their obedience and their smug, self-righteous feelings of superiority because they have obeyed. Jesus clearly wants us to obey him with the right attitude and actions, not one or the other. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus will challenge people in Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And even Josiah is picking up on this because in the verses in Deuteronomy 6 that say to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Strength, right before that, in the verses, it says, Now this is the commandment, 
the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land of which you're going over to possess it. So to love God is to obey Him. Yes, with our hearts and with our actions, attitude and actions. And Josiah has come to realize that. And so he publicly renews his commitment to God. And you may notice that the people also commit themselves to do the book, do what's written in the book of the covenant at the end of verse 3. The question though is, will this last? We've all gone to the Christian camp or this weekend retreat or the Bible conference and you come back on that spiritual high. You've rededicated your life. You're ready to serve Him with all your might and nothing is going to stop you from being completely sold out to God. You're a fire that will never be unflamed. And two days later, you're having trouble getting up to read your Bible. You know, that excitement doesn't always last. And yet Josiah has not only declared commitment to God, we're going to see that he follows through. We see this specifically in verses 4 through 20 by removing false worship. Now, by my count, Josiah takes 15 different acts of removing false worship. And rather than looking at each one individually, what I'd like to do is take the big picture of what's happening. And to do that, we'll see that Josiah has six actions or six aspects of his actions. And I'll say these again if you're trying to take notes. But his actions are practical. They're thorough. They're restorative. They're final. They're costly. And there's fulfillment. The first one is the most basic aspect of Josiah's actions is that they are practical. And that is, he's putting into practice what he just said with his lips. If he's going to obey all of God's commands, well, the first command is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second command is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And yet, as we read those verses, you could tragically hear that Israel had filled not just the land, they had even filled the temple in Jerusalem with idols, with images to other gods. Thus, Josiah removes utensils for worship, objects of worship, and leaders of false worship. Josiah's actions are practical. And that may seem a little too obvious to mention. And yet, often people fail in spiritual growth because they never move past declarations to change in their actions. People say, oh, I want to be pure in what I think about. But they don't change what they watch. They don't change their lifestyle or consider what they should be doing with their free time. Christians say, oh, I really want to grow in my walk with the Lord. But they don't read their Bible. They don't try to engage in more relationships. They don't listen to sermons or do anything. And they just hope that, poof, somehow one day they'll be more godly. But there needs to be practical steps and that's what Josiah does so first he's taking practical steps second Josiah leaves nothing but thoroughly second point he's thorough in removing everything let's begin by noting how Josiah thoroughly removes the idols by looking at where he does this as I mentioned the shocking thing is that in verse 4 he had to bring these out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal. It's not like he's going outside of Jerusalem or even out of the temple. In the very temple, 
are items made for Baal. Not only that, not only are there utensils or items for worshiping, but in the very temple in verse 6, there's an idolatrous image of Asherah. When we read of King Manasseh making it, we said this would be like an adulterer going, and everywhere there's a picture of their spouse, they put a picture of their fling next to it. I mean, how insulting could you be to your spouse? And yet this is what Israel has done. In the very place they're supposed to worship God, oh, let's put an Asherah right there. And so Josiah begins by working from the inside out. He starts in the temple, and then he goes out thoroughly removing idols. But the images are not just in the temple. As you walk up to the temple, you would have seen horses pulling a chariot for the sun god. So you can't even get to the temple. But it's not just the temple. As you get to the city of Jerusalem, it says in verse 8 that the governor's house has a high place. You can't even get to the city without seeing an idol. Then you get past the idol at the beginning of the city. You get to the temple thinking, oh, well, nope, there's another idol. Okay, well, at least in the temple, nope, there's another idol. Everywhere they go, they have enacted idols, and Josiah is radiating out, going and removing these. But not only that, if you look down at verse 8, he goes from Geba to Beersheba. Well, that's from one end of Judah to the other. But the amazing thing is, Josiah doesn't stop there. Those are the borders of Judah, but you may have noticed he crosses the border. He goes to Bethel. Bethel is in the land of the ten tribes of the north. And he goes to Bethel and he removes the idol where their idolatry in Israel started. But he doesn't even just stop there. Verse 19 talks about how he went through all Samaria, all of the land of the ten tribes of Israel. And he's not just content with those idols that are seen in the public. Look at verse 24. There in the middle, it says he removed the household gods. He's telling people, you need to bring them out. Make them public. Let's destroy them and get rid of them. So Josiah's fight against sin is thorough. He goes from the center to the edges, making sure that everything, public and private, is removed. Third thing about Josiah's removal of false worship is that it is restorative. Restorative. Some of you know Eb Steward. Eb loves to find old guitars, take them, take off all the bad things that have been done to them, and then once he's got the shell, build it all back together. Well, like Eb, Josiah begins by going out and removing all the bad that has been brought so he can get back to the original. Let's consider what is the bad that's been brought to Israel? Well, Bethel. That is where Jeroboam began the false worship in the nation of Israel. So there, Josiah goes and destroys it. The kings of Israel had expanded, and so they'd gone through all Samaria. So he gets rid of that. What had led to Judah's demise? Well, verse 5, the kings of Judah had built idols, so Josiah destroys them. Well, who had even started all of this, started them down this path? Well, Solomon, verse 13. So he goes and destroys what Solomon has built. He's going through and everything that has led Israel away, he's getting rid of it so he can restore them as a nation. All the way back to when it first started with Solomon. Each one is being brought up. These significant points of Israel's turning, and he's bringing Israel back. He's restoring them. And all of this is done really in a way similar to what Moses did 
when Israel had their first idol, the golden calf that Aaron made. You may remember Exodus 32.20. What did Moses do? He beat it down and he made it into dust. That's what Josiah is doing. He's trying to restore the nation. And you know, it's interesting. We already noticed this. He's not just restoring Judah. It's as though he has restored the nation politically because he's going through all of Israel, including the ten tribes that rebelled. Well, fourth, Josiah's removal of false worship is final. You may have found it odd as we're reading. Why does he go and take the dust and then spread it over graves? Or why does he sometimes get bones and cast them places? What in the world is he doing? Well, he does this because Numbers 19 declares that to have contact with the dead brings defilement. By putting these ashes on tombs, by putting bones in places, he's making sure that no one can ever use them for false worship again. Josiah wants all of these religious utensils, religious places, religious shrines to be completely done away with. And if you know anything about humans, you know that if it's not defiled to dust, people will cherish it and bring it back. You know, humans, we love relics. In Martin Luther's day, in his town, they had a collection of relics, and one of them they claimed was a genuine thorn from the crown of Christ, certified, I don't know how you certify this, but certified to have pierced the Savior's brow. Some people literally make pilgrimages to see tortillas with the face of Jesus in it. We love these little tokens. And Josiah knows if I don't go back to the very defilement, someone's going to go, look, this is a shred of Asherah's temple. Let's rebuild it. This is holy. And so Josiah is saying, this is final. I am making sure that no one will ever be tempted to use this stuff again. And Josiah is showing us the utter necessity of totally removing sin and its temptations. You know, one of the problems we have with our sin is we're not totally committed to removing it. We throw away the sinful material only to go to the trash the next day and get it out. We promise forgiveness only to rehash all of the issues the next day. We say we're done with those friends, but we still have all their phone numbers in our phone. So what is the place you have not yet torn down? Or that you tore down, but you haven't burned it and defiled it. You've left it open because you want secretly to go back. And Jesus minces no words when it comes to dealing with sin. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, it is better to lose it, to cut it off, than to enter into hell with it. There must be a finality to sin, and that is what Josiah is doing. Well, fifth, Josiah's removal of false worship is costly. You consider how long it would have taken for Josiah to have destroyed all this. I mean, that list was long. It's not like he did this in an afternoon or a nice weekend activity. And he ended up going not just Judah, all over Israel. This would have taken months, if not years, to have done all this. And whatever you're devoting your time to, that means you can't devote your time to something else. There's a cost. He is sacrificing his time. And this whole mission is about destruction. I'm sure there was at least one person who said, you know, hey, Josiah, do you have to destroy it? I mean, that's some pretty nice marble, some wood, gold. Maybe we could reuse it. 
you know, chop off the head and melt it down and use it for something else. You know, that's some really nice wood. It's lasted 300 years. I mean, come on. Let's just use it for something else. You can even hear others. Well, Josiah, this is national history. That's been around since Solomon. That's 300 years old. You can't destroy history. Let's make a museum. And yet when something is clearly used for false worship, Josiah models the right response. Destroy it. You may remember in the book of Acts, there's a great revival in the city of Ephesus. And it says, also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That is a lot of money. And I'm sure there are people in Ephesus who said, whoa, 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 hold on. We could sell them to the people who are still practicing magic. I mean, they're going to buy books somewhere. And then we could use that money for God. And yet they know we're not going to sell something that's going to lead someone to disobeying God. Rather, we are going to completely get rid of it. And there is a cost to following God. Yes, there is a great joy in coming to Christ, to trust Him and follow Him. And that's why Jesus compares coming to Him as someone who finds a pearl of great price. And in their joy, they go and sell everything so they can have that pearl. And yet, even the parable of the pearl shows there is a cost. We must be willing to give it all up for Jesus. And that's why he says to sit down and consider the cost. Have you considered the cost? You know, many people want certain things, but they don't want to have the cost of them happening. Oh man, this next year, I'd really love to run a marathon. Oh great, when are you going to start training? Well, I don't know. How are you going to find an hour or five days a week to train? Oh, I don't know. Well, I don't think you're going to run a marathon. Like, If you don't consider the cost, you're not going to do a couch to marathon. You know, you might do a couch to 5K or something, but you've got to consider the cost if you're going to take up this venture. If you're going to follow Christ, consider the cost. Are you willing to lose respect for the positions you hold? Are you willing to be unpopular and not get invited to everything? Maybe even mocked because of what your old dusty book says. Consider the cost. It is costly, but it is the pearl of great price that in joy we should sell all to have it. Well, sixth, the last thing of Josiah's actions on removing, and that is the removal of false worship is fulfillment. If you look at verses 16 through 19, it'll say over and over how this was in light of the word of a prophet. And that prophet was 1 Kings 13. Right after Jeroboam, the king of Israel who led the ten tribes away, made this false altar in Bethel, a prophet of God came and said in 1 Kings 13, 2-3, And the man cried against the altar, the false altar, by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places, who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave him a sign that day, saying, This is the sign of the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it 
shall be poured out. You know, all that was prophesied over 300 years in advance came to pass by a king named Josiah. You know, since God rules over history, he can declare what will happen 300 years from now, even down to the name of the person who's going to do it and what they're going to do. So Josiah's actions were practical. They were thorough. They were restorative. They were final. They were costly. And in our fight against sin, we should have all those. And then Josiah had one that we don't have, perhaps, fulfillment of prophecy. But having removed the false worship, like Ab, getting rid of all the bad, Josiah now begins the restoring of right worship. We see that in verses 21 through 25. And Josiah is merely following an important biblical principle. And that is to follow God, to walk after God, to obey God, is not merely to avoid a list of things and removing sin from your life. Yes, you should do that. But we should also, as Colossians 3 says, put off sin and put on righteousness. Thus, you're not to curse your brother, but you're to bless them. You're not to steal, but you're to be generous and share. You're not to commit adultery, but you're also to be faithful and loving to your spouse. Your God's call is not merely avoid, it's also active doing of good for his name. Thus, Josiah not only gets rid of the false worship, but he restores right worship in Jerusalem. Josiah thus commands them to keep the Passover, notice verse 21, as it is written in the book. Again, this is not his impulse. It's as it is written in the book. Verse 22 then says, For no such Passover have been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. Now notice, the author did not say no Passovers had been kept. Some people really get caught up on this. He said, no such Passover. Yes, Israel had kept Passovers. And Second Chronicles 30 tells of a national Passover that Hezekiah organized. Yet if you go read that one, you'll see that Josiah's Passover has three times as many bulls and sheep. You'll also read that Hezekiah couldn't do it on the day that was allotted and have all the people there. And Josiah does all of those things just as Moses commanded. So as it says, it is true, there was no such Passover since the judges until Josiah did it. But did you notice what year of Josiah's reign that this was kept? It's in verse 23. But in the 18th year of King Josiah. Well, why is that important? We'll flip back to chapter 22, verse 3. It's in the 18th year of King Josiah that they go and restore the temple and that they find the book of the law. Well, what's the point? It's that Josiah didn't wait. He didn't say, well... Okay, God says to do this, so, you know, we'll do that in the future. I got some other stuff I got to take care of first. He says, this is what God says to do, and we're going to do it right, of way, right away. And Josiah didn't wait for that supposed ideal time. As the saying goes, there's no time like the present. In fact, don't delay. Rather, you should start pursuing obedience right now. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions of people planning to, intending to, of tomorrow I'll do that. You know, God, I really need to start instructing my children in the Lord, so I'll do that this fall. 
oh, I really need to get a hold of my spending and my materialism, so I'll wait till after this month and then I'll cut up my credit card. Today is the day to start fixing whatever is wrong. You know, if it's sin, why does another drop of Jesus' blood need to be shed for your delay? Again, but what is compelling Josiah to do all of this? Well, verse 21, we already noted he did it because it's as it is written in the book of the covenant. Verse 25, it says, he did all this, end of the verse, according to all the law of Moses. Verse 25 is talking about what he did in verse 24, and that is removing mediums, necromancers, household gods, and other abominations. And that's important, and I think he saved this list here for the end because all of those are in direct, direct competition for how are you going to hear from God? Do you need a necromancer? Do you need to get some medium who can interact with the spirits to hear from God? Well, no. It's written in the word of God. Yes, God gives us a conscience. But if it leads you to go against God's word, then don't follow your heart. In direct contrast to Yoda and modern thinking, we don't have all we need inside of us. We desperately need information that's outside of us, both in God's special and general revelation. And if you have to realize what I'm saying is radically different than what our culture keeps preaching to us over and over. They think that like Yoda, look, the books may be decent. Sure, there's probably some good stuff in there, but you don't really need it. So he said everything we need is inside of us. And yet, if you've watched that movie, you'll also know there's a funny scene in which Ray thinks that she can feel the force. She gets so excited. She says, yes, I feel something. And yet, Luke is sitting there tickling her with a little branch until he slaps her and makes fun of her. Even the movie realizes you can't tell everything from the inside. Sometimes you need something from outside of you to let you know, no, you're an idiot. You don't even know what you're talking about. That's not what you think it is. And... Let's just think, if we followed our hearts on every impulse, would we really want those outcomes? Aren't there not impulses and desires in all of us that we say to ourselves, wow, where did that come from? I do not want to do that. And don't we realize that we tragically had to have a whole Me Too movement because specifically men too often follow what's on their heart? And people might say, well, that's just wrong. Well, why? In nature, there's no court tribunals for bulls fulfilling their heart's desires. Now, I, I do think it's wrong. It's clearly wrong. But why? Because humans are different than animals. We're made in God's image. We have morals and laws we're supposed to follow as we live like God. And yet, how do I know all that? Because God has told me in his word. Nothing in nature would compel me to do that. You know, people will say, look, you need to show compassion. We need to be forgiving. We need to be merciful. But what if someone's heart is telling them, ah, I don't want to forgive them. Why should they do it if we should only follow our hearts? Well, we should because God commands us to whether our heart feels like it or not. Again, we need an external standard to tell us how we should live. And if you don't admit to one, then it's basically all of us just arguing my view versus yours. As Martin Luther famously said, my conscience is held captive to the word of God and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. 
Luther is saying, yes, we need a conscience. We need a heart. But that is controlled. It's governed by the word of God. So I'm not saying never listen to any impulses, but listen to them as they're guided, constrained, and led by God's word. And yet the amazing thing, Josiah has been such a reformer, but the amazing thing is that even though verse 25 will say, there's no king like him before him after, it will then end by showing that though he was righteous, he wasn't redemptive. That's our last section. Righteous, though not redemptive. And the author of Kings even goes out of his way to write in a way that shows this. And we've mentioned before that in the historical books in the Bible, the author doesn't always write in a chronological fashion, meaning each event, event happening in a time order. Thus, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, you may in one Gospel notice that an event happens in another in one order, but then you go read another Gospel and they're in a different order. Well, it's not because they didn't know the order in time of Jesus' events. It's that they organized them in a way to show certain themes. And if you compare the passage of Josiah here with the passage of Josiah in 2 Chronicles 33 and 34, you'll see the order is slightly different. And I think the author specifically did this because he's highlighting something. He first, three verses, tells of he's going to do these reforms. Then we read of this massive list of reforms. We read he's like no one else before him. And so we're like, this is the guy. He's going to bring it all back. And then what do we read in verse 26? Still the Lord did not turn away from his burning wrath. Josiah did so much that it's overwhelming. There could be no better person or king, and yet even all that he did, it wasn't enough to remove God's wrath. And thus God promised to remove Israel still. The Jerusalem will be cast down with the temple, and then we're told that Josiah goes and dies. Not when he wanted to, but when God wanted to. And his death, it had no redeeming value. So notice, the king of Judah can bring reformation, but only the king of kings can bring redemption. In contrast to Josiah losing his life when he didn't want to, Jesus was clear, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down, I take it up again. In his life, what was it for? Well, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus can bring more than spiritual reformation. He could bring redemption. He pought back our sins. He paid for them. Josiah was an incredible king. In fact, the best of all the kings were told. But it's not enough to fix their problem. The problem that is before God, you must be perfectly holy. Not more holy than unholy, or more holy than the other nations. Thus, you can have a great king of Judah, like Josiah, who did so much good, but adding more and more and more good never gets rid of the bad. And this is true in other areas of life. Imagine you're making a cake and you're adding the ingredients while your mixer's running. You add the butter, the sugar, the vanilla, and you're cracking eggs and you're putting them in and you crack one and as soon as you drop it, you both recoil and spring forward. You recoil because it's rotten and that sulfuric smell makes you go, ugh! And you go forward to hit it off because you don't want that mixed in, but it's too late. And it's all mixed in. How much other ingredients are you going to need to add to make the cake good? 
No, you can't. You can add all the flour and the sugar and all the ingredients you want, but the bad has affected the whole thing. What do you have to do? You have to throw it out. You have to start all over. Well, that's what we need. We need to start all over. We need to be born again. And what does Jesus say? Anyone who's in me is a new creation. We don't just need, oh, I need to get better with this life. No, we need someone to come because we can't do enough. We are unable to do enough to overcome all the bad. And it's when we come to the end of ourselves that we grasp, look, God, it's only your power. It's only what Christ has done that I have any hope. That's when we've come to know salvation. It's when we say, God, save me. I can't do this on my own. Whether that's your initial salvation or day by day as we seek to put sin to death. You know the amazing thing? Once you see that, once you realize I can't live the life I need to, I need Christ to live it, that actually empowers, that actually impels you more to lead the life you want to lead. And did you notice something interesting about this passage? Josiah does all this reform after he was told, you're not going to be able to remove God's wrath. We saw that at the end of chapter 22. The prophetess Huldah said, you will be spared, Josiah, but the rest of the nation won't. Well, what did Josiah's great-grandfather Hezekiah do when he heard that? Oh, well, at least it's not going to be in my day. Wonderful. And yet Josiah says, doesn't matter. I'm living for God's glory. I'm living for his pleasure. So I'm going to keep serving the Lord. I'm going to keep doing what's right, though there will not be a clear, tangible change in what happens to our nation. You know, people changed by the grace of God are the type of people who are not only motivated by the carrots and sticks of this world. They're not the people who on their last day of work, whether it's their leaving or their retiring, slack off and say, well, what are they going to do? Fire me? They're not working for the boss. They're not working for their paycheck. They're working for God. So whether it's their first day on the job, the day the boss is in, or their last second, they're working their hardest as unto the Lord. Why? Well, because of what Josiah saw, that God is a God who will bring justice and wrath, but he forgives the humble. What a God I want to serve. And so Josiah is impelled to go out. You know, People who live like that, sometimes others look around and go, what a waste of life. I mean, you're doing all that, it's not going to change. I mean, why are you working hard in the last five minutes? You, you're getting off and just go sit in your chair and go watch YouTube videos. You know, they can't fire you. You're wasting your time. You know, there was a woman once that a lot of people said, that's a waste. What are you doing? It was a woman in Bethany who came and she took the most valuable possession she had. And she broke it, an ointment, and she poured it on Jesus to anoint him for burial. And some around the room scolded. This could have been sold and given to the poor. And yet Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You're like Josiah. Like this woman, we get to do beautiful things for God. They may, not, they may not matter in this world. And we may not ever see any lasting change. We may be scorned. We may be mocked. What a waste. And yet they are beautiful in God's eyes. 
And what more could we want? Let's pray. Oh Lord, would we have that vision that we are living for you. That your pleasure, that you saying this is beautiful in my eyes is what matters to us. Oh Lord, we need you. We do need to get to the end of our ropes and realize, Lord, we need you every second, every moment to lead the life that is for our good and your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.